reading tonight is from Isaiah chapter 40, and it can be found on page 723 of the Church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom, then, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. 
to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you may like to keep Isaiah 40 open. And uh, thank you, Mandy, for that reading. And it's my privilege uh, to share from this chapter with each of us and all of us this evening. And it's about the greatness and the grandeur of God. And if it's any help, you'll find on the back of the leaflet some observations about the passage. First of all, let's pray. And I want to say a prayer that's adapted from the words of a former Bishop of Winchester in the 17th century. Let's pray. And these are words voiced originally by Lancelot Andrews. Blessing and honour, thanksgiving and praise more than we can utter, more than we can conceive, be to your glorious name, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by all angels, all men, all creation, for ever and ever. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40. Last week, uh, many of you will recall, Clive was sharing with us from chapters 36 and 37. Uh, He, you may have noticed, skipped uh, 38 and 39, and uh, now we're in 40. So along the way, I'll try and bridge that gap a bit, at least from chapter 39. But let me begin with some words that were spoken um, more than 300 years ago by a particularly influential pastor and teacher amongst the settlers who'd gone from Britain, from England, to New England and were settling in the Massachusetts area in in the 18th century. His name was Cotton Mather, and this is what he wrote the great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. Let me read that again. It's got the sound of 
that age in it. We wouldn't express it in quite the same way today, but the words are good. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. And as I read those words, I realised we could say of the prophet Isaiah exactly the same, that it was his intention to restore the throne and dominion of God in the hearts and minds of the people of God, the Jews, in his day. Now, I was quite fascinated to read also, as I went through this passage, not just in the NIV, but in other versions, um, uh, in the ESV Study Bible, um, which I heartily recommend if you're thinking of buying a study Bible, this is as good as any available at the moment. And in the write-up about the book of Isaiah, it reminds us uh, very simply, and I quote, the central theme of the book of the prophet Isaiah is God himself. And here's the interesting part of it. The prophet, statesman, politician, spiritual leader that he is, defines everything by its relation to God. So there's absolutely no separation, as there might well be today, between the sacred and the secular, the religious bit and the rest. Everything, everyone, in one way or another, is explained by our relationship with God. Now, I want to suggest that it was hard then, as we shall see, for the Jews of old to grasp that. It's even harder for us 21st century Westerners to measure everything as the people of God, in this case the church, by the standard of how it relates to the holiness and greatness and majesty and the purposes of God. But let me begin where the people of God, the Jews, were when Isaiah, as it were, penned these words. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 27 which is in many ways the pivotal bit of this chapter, not because of what it says, but because it clarifies what comes before and after. <clears throat> and Isaiah asks of the people, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my gods? They feel abandoned, misunderstood, and we might argue they have good cause to complain. You see, God's judgment has fallen on them, and as Isaiah had predicted would happen, they have been deported from Jerusalem and now live in exile in Babylon, and that's modern-day Iraq. 
It's not Assyria that's the great enemy now. It's their successors, their conquerors, the proud nation of Babylon. And uh, in thinking about this reality that they face, we see the need, in a sense, to bridge the gap between what goes before, what we heard about last week, and what we have in chapter 40. Isaiah 39 gives us something of the background. God had delivered King Hezekiah from serious illness, and he'd actually extended his reign in Jerusalem. Yet, his faith and trust in God wavers as he's wooed by the new power breakers in emerging Babylon. And he simply cannot resist boasting and revealing to envoys who come from that land just how wealthy he is. Look at chapter 39, verse 2. Um, there they are arriving with letters and a gift because he'd, the king of Babylon, had heard of um, Hezekiah's illness and recovery. And Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show to them. It's a, an extraordinary lack of wisdom. But there it is in, in the text of chapter 39. And Isaiah hears of what King Hezekiah has done and with chillily prophetic words uh, confronts the king. Look at verse 5. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then we get a glimpse of the, the pathetic reply and attitude that this once great king went on to reveal. The word, word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Do you see how utterly short-sighted he has become in his sense of responsibility for the nation over which God had placed him to govern. One of the biggest, certainly, and I think one of the best commentaries on Isaiah that's come out over the years was by the late Alec Matea, and uh, it, it's a mammoth study and always worth reading 
Um, and he has this comment about this incident in the, the sequence of events. What a wretched response from Hezekiah, he writes. The king had been given a chance to play politics in the first league and he was not now going to return to the milk and water of true religion. When pride replaces humility, self-satisfaction replaces concern for others, and works replace faith, then the die is cast and the kingdom is doomed. When the word of God is met with smugness, instead of tears and prayers. The word proves its obduracy and accomplishes its grim purposes. And it's with those thoughts in mind that I'd like us to turn back to this passage. because quite remarkably at the beginning of chapter 40, although disaster has overtaken the people of God under Hezekiah's reign, and they are now, because of his and their own unfaithfulness, they are still to be called, as verse 1 reminds us, my people, and the Lord is still their God. And although the contrast between chapters 36 to 39 and chapter 40 and what follows are massive, what doesn't change is the very character of God. And these people, for all their willful disobedience, are still his people and he still delights to be called their God. And so it is in chapter 40, right the way through into this section of the prophet Isaiah, to chapter 55, there's a shift away from judgment and challenge and more towards forgiveness, comfort, and ultimately deliverance, and deliverance beyond anything that they could themselves have imagined. First of all, that deliverance comes through the person of Cyrus, the Persian, and he's first mentioned by name in chapter 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. And he is the one to be used by God to overthrow the proud Babylonians and eventually release God's people and allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But as the chapters develop in this part of Isaiah, there's an even greater reference in Isaiah chapter 53, the whole of the chapter, in fact, uh, tells us the full story, but it speaks of another deliverer, one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
And so you've got this, as it were, short-term amazing fulfillment of the prophetic vision of Isaiah, but also the long-term fulfillment of that vision through God's mysterious servant, whom you and I know to be none other than Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross. I found all this stuff as I, I got into it deeply moving. And uh, what came out as I reflected on it were a series of observations, and that's what I put on the back of the leaflets. And, and the first observation is this, that God's greatness, God's grandeur and his deliverance is revealed in the messiness of human history. Not because we are worthy, but because he chooses to love us. You see, uh, Hezekiah got it right some of the time, but not all of the time. The people of God got it right some of the time. They were victims of the brutality and the military might of surrounding nations. They were, by their enemies, deported into exile. They had every reason to play the familiar 21st century tune of we're the victims, we don't deserve this, our feelings have been hurt. But they too were responsible for their sins. And God acted in their lives and in the life of that nation not because they deserved his love, but because he chose to love them. And I think that's a truth that we need to hold firmly onto in the age in which we live, when there is so much within the life of the nation and the world which is beyond our understanding and causes, understandably too, the desire to say, actually, we're the victims of circumstances. It's not our fault. But the greater truth is that you and I, every one of us, as were the Jews of old, are accountable to God for the lives we live. So there are the Jews in exile, and with this constantly repeated question, which we've got in chapter 40, verse 27, is God really able to help us? And if he really is able to help us, does he want to help us? And Isaiah's response to that question, we have in Isaiah chapter 40, and it brings me to my second observation, Isaiah's response to their doubts, their complaints, is to replace their meagre thoughts about God with mighty thoughts about him. You see, the mighty thoughts don't tell us all there is to know about God. And we need to be clear that at this point, however great this period is, 
in Old Testament history. It is the Old Testament, and we don't get the full picture and we, till we come through to the revelation of God in the person of Jesus and the evident work of the Holy Spirit tied in with all that he did for us on the cross. So we have to wait for New Testament times to get the fuller picture. But as far as the Old Testament goes, this is heady stuff. If you're, as a Christian of many years standing, and you don't come back to a chapter like Isaiah 40 on a regular basis, I'd be very surprised. It's one of those purple passages, as a tutor of mine always used to describe it, that's there for us to savour and turn back to time and time and time again. So we can't know everything from Isaiah 40, but we can know a great deal. For example, the mighty God is compassionate and brings not passing, but authentic, lasting comfort <clears throat> to his people. And that's essentially what's unfolded in chapter 40, verses 1 through to 11. And he it is too, the mighty God, who is creator of all that is. There's nothing that exists that he's not created. And this creation, he fine-tunes for their good and for his glory. And that's more especially chapter 40, verses 12 through to verse 26. And then this same mighty God, in his love, renews their strength. And that, of course, is, is the final section of the chapter. So I'd like us to look in a bit more detail at each of those sections and see what more we can discover uh, for our good and our encouragement. First of all, for example, the mighty God of whom Isaiah is writing is compassionate and the bringer of true comfort. Comfort! Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You see, Isaiah doesn't minimise the suffering God's people will have to experience in exile. And they are already experiencing it. And he calls it hard service. They're having to face up to not only the fact that they are the victims of oppression, but also the oppression they experience is a consequence of their own sinfulness. There was one speaker at the General Synod, this isn't in my notes, but it comes to mind, last week in the famous debate on Wednesday, Andrea Michiele-Williams 
who heads up Christian Concern, who actually stood there and dared to name sin for what it is. I thought, what a courageous woman. And how moving it was to hear others, like Sam Albury, describe how, as a gay person, he was bullied at school. And yet he felt the same kind of oppression there in general synod for people who were hostile to him for wanting to live out his life in the way that scripture teaches. You can see those brief speeches in different ways, obviously through the usual channels. And one of the the consequences of being in exile for the people of God in Isaiah's time is that they've got time to think about how they've got into this mess. This isn't in my notes either, but um, uh, historically, and Clive will pick up on this, I think there have been periods when uh, different authors and writers have talked about the Babylonian captivity of the church. I think it was used of the mess that there was when there are at one time three popes, not resident in Italy, but France, and the chaos that caused. But Martin Luther, the same whose 500th anniversary we celebrate this year, or at least we should be celebrating, also spoke about the captivity of the church and the tragedy in his day that, by and large, the church, the official church, just didn't see it. So the amazing thing is that the Creator God puts us in situations to give us time to think and reflect, both personally and as the people of God, and they're within his purposes because everything in Isaiah, one way or another, relates back to God, and he makes sense of it all. So Isaiah doesn't minimize the suffering of God's people, and he recognizes that they will go and are already going through what he describes as hard service. Now it is that they're having to face up to the fact that not only are they the victims of oppression, but they are also experiencing the consequences of their own sin. Put simply, God holds them accountable. They, not just their enemies, they too have sinned. And yet he still loves them. Verses 3 to 7 take up this theme. It's as if God is constructing a royal highway through the wilderness, straightening up the paths through which the rescuer will come, as it were, in a chariot to deliver them from the consequences of their sin and from their sin itself. 
already something of the righteousness of God and the justice of God has swept over them like a dry wind in a dusty place. And they consequently have dried up like grass in a drought and are like leaves falling from a tree. And something of that is in verse 7 and again in verse 8. But even in those situations, Isaiah says to them they're to depend neither on their feelings nor their circumstances, but rather on the unchangeable, dependable voice of God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And this, this image of comfort is developed even more in verse 11, where God is likened to a shepherd leading his flock out of the desert wastelands and leading them into pastures they could never, ever have dreamt of. And this is unbelievable good news. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Do not be afraid. And God, in clearing this highway, is preparing his messianic kingdom of righteousness. And here's the unbelievable bit. These Jews in exile are to be part of it. And there's even more to be said. The mighty God, who is creator of all that is, fine-tunes everything for their good and for his glory. And that's verses 12 and 13. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? they had to grapple, as we do today, with the fact that idolatry holds sway. And that's developed in verses 18 onwards. With whom, then, will you compare God? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it. Nowadays, we don't just make images of God as they did then. We have mental images of God which are short of what the Bible actually teaches. But it's interesting that verse 12, in flagging up uh, the power of God, 
uses this phrase which literally reads, he adjusted the heavens with the span of his fingers. And I found, a, a, was for me, maybe I hope for you as well, a fascinating comment by the physicist and theologian John Polkinghorne in, in writing about this. And uh, this is what he says, and I don't pretend to understand it, all the scientists, the mathematicians present can fill in the details afterwards and maybe I'll grab it and understand it a bit more. He says that effectively in the early expansion of the universe there had to be a close balance between expansive energy driving things apart and the force of gravity pulling them together. And he writes about this, and in order for the life that we know on planet Earth to come into being, it required a balance between the effects of expansion and contraction, which at a very, very early epoch, and I'm quoting him in the universe's history, history in brackets he puts the planked time, a few smiles there, had to differ from equality by no more than 1 in 10 by 60. Um, the numerate will marvel at such a degree of accuracy. For the non-numerate, that's me, I will borrow an illustration from Paul Davis of what that accuracy means. He points out that it is the same as aiming at a target an inch wide on the other side of the observable universe, 20,000 million light years away and hitting the mark. You can read the quote for yourself afterwards if, if you want to grapple with that a bit more. And this same God then and now fine-tunes the lives of his people for their good and his glory. Isn't that an amazing thought? Of course, idolatry still holds sway. The great attraction of money, sex, power, and the idols that he writes about in verses 18 onwards is often because we think we can control them. We're not actually accountable to them. And yet, listen to Isaiah's response to that kind of thinking. Do you not know, in verse 21, have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circles of the earth and its peoples are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. You see, it's not presidents or prime ministers who are the real makers and shakers of history, but God alone. And God's people of old 
had to learn that fact and face the truth of its implications. And one of them was that they weren't likely to get out of exile any time soon. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that and then, for them, it was the Babylonians. After them would come the Persians, and after the Persians came the Greeks, and after the Greeks, with their empire, came the Romans. And so it is in every era, as political and military powers rose and fell, they would be tempted to ask the question, does God really care? And so by way of an answer, the prophet leads them out to look at the night sky. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls each of them by name? Some years ago, I remember watching a DVD by a Christian astronomer, Professor David Block. Some of you will know of him. He's South African, I think. Anyway, the presentation he gave was at Witwatersrand Strand University in South Africa, explaining why he believed in a universe that was designed. And he showed a slide of 100 billion stars. And he pointed out to his overawed audience that if they were to count one star per second, they would be there for two and a half thousand years. What is it that Isaiah says? God calls forth each star by name. That's the measure of his greatness. That is your God, Israel in exile, he says. Can you, dare you believe that this, the God who calls the stars by name, is powerless to help you and me? Let's bring it right up to the present, because we too need the reminder that our lives are not governed by blind fate, and nor are we ruled by external circumstances. If God knows each of the stars by name, how much more does he have a loving purpose for each one of us, his people? if time permitted, and it doesn't, uh, I'd love to take us to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14, where we're reminded that we don't actually have a continuing city here on earth. And in his book, Losing Our Virtue, chapter 2 of this book by David Wells, which he heads The Playground of Desire, he describes how rhythmically across history Every period goes through periods of decline and ascendancy. 
and it's a quite fascinating study in the ups and downs of history. But we don't need the reminder that as far as we can tell, we live at a time when at least in our part of the Western world, Christian faith is in decline. We've all, whether we fully realise it or not, been battered by the circumstances of our lives. We've been, far more than we know, overwhelmed by the propaganda of the secular, unbelieving society around us. And there are no signs that it's going to stop soon. So we, like the Jews of old, need to look anew to God through his word and hear him speak. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Let's pray. Just a moment to think of perhaps one thing that we, by God's grace, have seen anew from this chapter of Isaiah this evening and make it our own as we pray about it. Almighty God, who goes on loving us, his people, in every circumstance of life, transform our meagre thoughts about you into mighty thoughts, and by your grace and in your mercy, keep us steadfast. For this we pray, dear Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.